1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rebecca Trickington, and I am delighted today to be joined by Dr. Juzi Russo to discuss her new book, Women, Empires, and Body Politics at the United Nations, 1946-1975. to Dr. Russo is currently an assistant professor of history at Montgomery County Community College in Pennsylvania, and she has published numerous articles about the United Nations and the colonial world, as well as on questions of gender politics in its early decades. So, Jeezy, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you for having me, and good morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women, Empires, and Body
1: Politics at the UN was just published this month by the University of Nebraska Press. So first of all, a big congratulations on your first book. Thank you. Uh, This book covers the decades between World War II and International Women's Year in 1975, which has been less studied in histories of global women's rights, and it also fills a really important gap in histories of the United Nations by looking specifically at the UN's Commission on the Status of Women. So you draw heavily on meeting minutes that show how different delegates from different regions are approaching women's rights issues during this period. And some of the tensions that you identify are really particularly interesting during this time of decolonization when you see a lot of new voices from the global south finally gaining a seat at the table. And so we'll talk today about how those manifest across a range of issues related to women and women's bodies, from polygamy to family planning to FGM. Um, But first of all, tell us a little bit about your own background and what led you to this research topic in the first place.
0: Okay, thank you. So I was uh, trained as a cultural historian, and I had a parallel training in women's studies, because I was always fascinated with, you know, the interdisciplinary aspect of uh, women, gender and sexuality issues. And I, um, I have a personal history with empire, like I say, in the book, right? My... Um, The family of my father is from Libya, which was an Italian colony. So I always grew up, you know, listening to these colonial stories. But then um, my own political trajectory made me an anti-colonial person. And so uh, it was interesting to me to, you know, to study empire in a way that... Um, could be more innovative and connected to specifically bodies, right? That's more part of my cultural history background, right? The study of um, the body and how the body is represented and uh, constructed, really. And um, the project was born uh, through a conversation with my advisor, the late Jean Quadert. And uh, um, at the beginning, it was supposed to be a project on uh, human rights and gender. But then, you know, when I went to the archives, I kept seeing all these materials on uh, dependent territories and uh, women in the trusteeship council and women in the colonies. And, and, you know, I recognized the tropes of imperial feminism. And uh, but I also you know had started imperial feminism in a more you know formal um, imperial setting right british or you know even americans in the philippines or france so it was difficult to to be able to find this you know the imperial dialectic in an inter- in an international organization such as the un right Um, So let's say the project is sources-driven, right? It really comes from, um, um, you know, even when we say Cold War decolonization, but it really comes from observing what these expressions specifically were, right? And so from there, I um you know i started to write this was my dissertation the book is a little different than the dissertation you know obviously it's um when we have to write at a professional level without this being a requirement we feel that we have a more authoritative intellectually authoritative voice and i believe in the intersection of history and theory and uh, I believe that even those historians who claim not to use theory, they still use theory. Even if you look at change over time, you're still using a specific type of, uh, uh, you know, progressive understanding of history if we want to. And um, so, you know, let's say the post-colonial and feminist uh, uh, theories alive here, right? And so um, in the way I read the source at sources, because... I mean, let's face it. The sources, diplomatic sources, um, a little dry, right? And so, one has to, you know, without these, um, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, these tropes and images that were in a way hegemonic and sometimes created unexpected agreements, right? So we can talk about this through your questions. Yeah. Well, let's
1: um, just set the stage a little bit for listeners who might not be familiar with um, the infrastructure you're talking about. Can you just give a brief summary of the origins of the Commission on the Status of Women, sort of where it sits within the UN architecture, what's its mandate and who are its members in these early years?
0: Sure. So, well, the commission has a usual story, right, which is, uh, which, you know, both women's historians, uh, the official UN documents or official UN writing and activists uh, would tell, right, which is an ineffective body of the UN, which became to be effective only in 1975, right? So what I did instead is, uh, you know, in a way looking uh, more closely at this, uh, you know, way of being ineffective and finding, right, the intersections with the Cold War and decolonization because I believe there is meaning in even the way in which the commission was ineffective. So um, two meetings contributed to the creation of an early sub-commission on the status of women, which depended on the commission of human rights. So these two meetings were the San Francisco Conference in 1945, in which the Brazilian delegate, Berta Luz, um, lobby then proposed the creation of a specific body dedicated to women's rights. Um, Obviously, uh, this was a concerted action with other international feminists that attended the San Francisco conference. Uh, The second meeting is um, what I call in the book the genealogy of, uh, um, in a way, gender politics of women's rights at the United Nations, which is the first uh, General Assembly meeting in London in 1946, when Eleanor Roosevelt, um, you know, gave this important speech that I think most people know, right? She read this letter, letter to the women of the world, and in the letter, she, you know, she assumes that women deserved rights, which in this case are political rights, because they contributed to the war effort so so she constructs women's rights women's rights as something to deserve something that prescribes right some effort rather than being you know ontologically part of the individual like men's rights so these two meetings right contributed to at least the conceptual right um genealogy of women's politics within the UN. And then there is the actual formation of this subcommission. Um, at the first meeting of the subcommission on the status of women, which was supposed to uh, include experts in women's rights, Roosevelt thought that um, the, the program of Bodil backdrop, the representative from Denmark, was too unrealistic, too um, progressive, too ahead of its time. And, uh, and so, um, Boris Braggtrap, along with other international feminists, lobbied for this subcommission to be independent, to be the Commission on the Status of Women, which was born in 1947 as, and as an independent commission, as it is the Human Rights Commission, both, however, depending on the Economic and Social Council. An interesting detail is that um, the Commission on the Status of Women um, had to express, uh, you know, ideas and. Proposals to other UN bodies uh, with this, you know, wishful language. So it would always be the Commission on the Status of Women wishes to suggest, etc. It could not instruct, right? This is a highly rigid um, hierarchy in the UN architecture. Um, mm-hmm. And so I I would like to say that the early um, members of the Commission on the Status of Women were uh, from 15 countries, and I'm just going to mention a few, if that's fine all of them, just to, you know, to give them this historical space. Um, so there is uh, Jesse Street from Australia, was a well-known international feminist. Uh, Uralova from uh, Bielorussia. Um, Cecilia sung new from China. Um, Gra- Graciela Morales de Echeverria, Echeverria from Costa Rica. Boril Backtrap, uh, whom I mentioned earlier from Denmark, Maria helene Lafosseau, who later would be the chairperson of the committee. She was French, and Ramirez from Guatemala, um, Sharifa Begum, Sharifa Amid Ali from India, Castillo uh, Ledon from Mexico. Uh, Cosma from Syria, Pactas from Turkey, Popova from uh, uh, the USSR, Mary Sutherland from the United Kingdom, Dorothy Canyon, who is pretty popular from the U.S., and Isabella Urdaneta from Venezuela. I feel that they deserve to be, you know, mentioned. Yeah, and thank I think you.
1: Even just hearing all of those different countries they're coming from really gives a sense of the diversity of viewpoints that the rest of your book really... Um, digs into because these are such different backgrounds, um, all debating the same questions. So I guess to jump right into some of those early tensions, um, in chapter two here, you discuss the different categories of women, um, sort of who the commission thought were the women who needed rights, um, and how those are influenced by some of these macro political factors like the Cold War and like colonialism. what are some of these different categories that emerge in the early years of the Commission?
0: Yeah. Um, First of all, I would like to add that um, when the Commission was born, the the main audience was declared to be the women of the world. So not the women of the UN member states, but a more universal understanding of uh, uh, you know, women and, you know, this commission was supposed to be useful to all women in the world. Um, from, uh, you know, the very early um, reports of the commission, um, the, the delegates grasped um, with this issue of women in the colonies, right? Women, the UN changed the language. Um, colonialism, as I say, in um, I believe in chap- chapter three, it became a charged right um, word that was u- was used as a weapon right by um, uh, the Soviet bloc right, which accused the West of being both um, colonial and capitalist um, in a you know intertwined way. And so the, the expression colonies was not used. They used dependent territories, trust territories, because of the trusteeship Council, which was created, right, in the same environment, if we want, of the Subcommission on the Status of Women at the San Francisco Conference. So this issue of, you know, colonialism, or empire, if you want, and um, women's rights were hand-in-hand from the beginning. Um, so the Cold War also generated these, uh, um, I want to say, proto-imperial circumstances, such as, uh, um, you know, the occupation of uh, Japan, right, immediately after World War Two, or um, So, well, you know, what we would call informal control over other countries, right? The partition of Palestine. um, And, you know, uh, so... So we have here, for each of these situations, the commissioners constructed this other, if we want, right? And so there is an other in the dependent territories. Um, There is this episode of Japanese women who um, uh, were guests at one of the commission sessions and... uh, and in a way, commissioners, especially the U.S. commissioner, wants to basically teach right democracy to um, the Japanese observers. Um, and then there is the issue of um, uh, war and peace, right? So, for example, um, the Soviet delegates and their allies always use the word peace in a. Um, in a way that other uh, delegates found controversial, especially for the Korean War, right, which was basically approved by the UN. And um, so in this category, women of the world, right, there are these fragmentations that happened because of the Cold War and these, uh, you know, forms of, um, let's say, informal control, right? And so... um, What the issue is, uh, of course, I want to specify that even in the early commission, there were women coming from post-colonial, newly formed, right, uh, nation states such as, right, India. And uh, so, for example, the Indian, the early Indian commissioner has an important role here because, uh, she could not express right direct disdain against Britain that was not right the place to do that um, However, you know she claimed, we cannot use the expression... When we talk about gender equality, we cannot say we want women to be equal to men because in some settings, men have no rights. And I would argue that she was referring to colonialism. And so it doesn't serve any purpose to really say that women should be equal to men when men uh, don't have equality. And so... So I would say that each of these, you know, macro political factors, as you call them, like the Cold War and colonialism, had uh, and maybe still have an intrinsic other. Right. And uh, and commissioners, you know, grasp with that, I would argue also to find a political space, right, like Victorian imperial feminism, Um um, Antoinette Barton talks uh, writes about this topic right so in this Victorian imperial feminism uh, women built right the other the the other woman right to rescue because they wanted this political space within imperialism and um, and if we notice right through the book in some instances and we can talk about this later like female uh, genital modification, um, even Cold War separations were transcended, right? And they all agreed, um, I would say, wrongly, right, on, uh, on you know, this out- language of outrage.
1: One other um, division that you point out that I found really interesting is this... Um, disagreement over how the commission received information and which sources it saw as being legitimate. Could you talk a little bit more about that, Um, how its members distinguish between what they consider to be sort of scientific fact versus propaganda?
0: Definitely, in, obviously in a very arbitrary way, right? So that's the short time to... Uh, this issue emerged at the first session uh, the commissioners held abroad, which was in Beirut, in Lebanon, in 1949. Um, I think the meeting is really representative of this, um, you know, maybe... Um, propaganda, the the use of propaganda, which at some point um, one Polish representative self-claimed, you know, she said, sure, this is propaganda, but it's good propaganda. So I like that. So the the issue, the the commission, um, according to um, its own mandate, received data from the the secretariat session on women, which was this more bureaucratic... Um, office, right? There was always a different uh, director for this section. And it was mostly statistics, uh, data from countries, data on voting, uh, data on uh, education of women. Um, At some point, the commissioners also uh, pushed to receive a specific report from the trusteeship council on women. So... um, the at the Beirut meeting, um, the Women um, International Democratic Federation participated, and uh, this organization had, you know, communist ties, and uh, the the representative talked about the the status of women in Iran. And this conflict exploded. So commissioners said that uh, they had no right to talk about, you know, um, a country that was, um, you know, far away. They when right, the direct um, person from Iran, for example, was not present, that this was propaganda. And uh, and on the contrary, right... um, they say they could not interfere, right? This is part also of why it was less complex to um, discuss and talk about formal empires or dependent territories because they were not part, officially, they were not member states. And so commissioners could not directly criticize um, a member state. Sometimes um, nationalist China did that when they talked about uh, Soviet Russia, but in general, that was not a good diplomatic etiquette. Um, So... In the, at the Beirut meeting, there was the issue of Iran. Then uh, the issue again of the um, the Korean War that was about that was you know about to start, and then um, the the partition of Palestine. And so one Catholic organization um, presented this resolution, proposed the resolution and in which commissioners had to help refugees from, uh, you know, the partition of Palestine. And so here we can see a contradiction, right? When it was about Iran, because, right, the specific organization that proposed this type of conversation had communist ties, that was propaganda when it was about you know a catholic group um, that proposed right even um, you know even the, the fact itself because the, the the partition of Palestine was a un decision and so it presented even more um, you know pro- it was even more problematic right commissioners even discussed that they expressed compassion and this and that so there is Often these, so that's why I, I would claim I would, so for them right, it is through what commissioners attack this propaganda that we can see what they consider to be more objective and scientific, and in this case, it was arbitrary. Also because you know these data that the secretariat received was often. Uh, you know, not only dry, but also it came from, um, I I don't know, member states could pretty much send whatever they wanted. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, let me push you a little bit more on these sort of arbitrary divisions within the commission, um, because you write a lot about how it becomes in many ways a platform for Cold War competition. So you have these two different models of equality that the United States and the Soviet Union are offering. How do they advance those concepts? How do they use the commission to show those concepts? Um, You talk about specifically those two commission conferences in um, Moscow and Bangkok.
0: Yeah, I would like to specify that the one in Moscow uh, was not sponsored by the United Nations, but um, UN delegates or delegates from UN agencies could... Indeed, um, took part in a more personal capacity. Uh, the Bangkok Seminar of '56 is an officially was an officially UN seminar, international seminar. Um, so, yeah. So the 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 Soviet delegates or and their allies always. Um you know, presented this model of independent uh, independent woman um, who also, because they always pushed right the idea of, of economic rights rather than political rights alone, they would argue have no value if one has uh, doesn't have a job or if one is in constant doesn't have right um, some level of income. And because that would keep women dependent on still on men. And so they present and I think it's very fascinating. um, The sources that describe the seminar are fascinating and they're mostly from um, the UN agencies from the UNESCO and uh, the ILO. And so they described this, you know, international meeting, which was a way to uh, perform, right, to show this new communist woman, right, what I would call the working girl. And uh, so they show women in factories. They also... Uh, they took delegates to see the ballet, right? Um, so a woman who was supposed to be graceful but also strong, and uh, and then it's interesting because they also um, visited some of the, I'm just going to say colonies of Soviet Russia, right? Uh, countries such as Uz- Uzbekistan and. And over there, right, and I do trace a little bit of the trajectory of uh, um, these Soviet colonies and how, right, the Soviet model was to turn, right, uh, the local women into Soviet women with some, you know, um, fiasco um, initiatives such as unveiling women, etc. So the Soviet model, uh, which they aim to export, this is a Cold War logic, right? The Cold War, if we want civilizing mission, was different. It was not about civilizing, but rather turning, right, this local... Uh, local population, more, in, more into, you know, if we want Soviet citizens or more similar to Soviet citizens, the same for the American model, right? More similar to Americans. And uh, and so, so this first model is this, you know, independent woman. I also know uh, through secondary sources that truly... This was a, you know, if you want a triple burden of Soviet women, because they had to work inside the house, outside the house, and also perform this soviet if we want to. And the American um, women, after Dorothy Canyon, who was... More progressive. In some instances, she even uh, agreed with Popova, the Soviet delegate. There are a series of Cold Warriors, right? Women delegates who just translated, right? Um, more of this Cold War ideology of the 1950s, 60, 60s, and even 70s, and more traditional. So Um, At the seminar in Bangkok, they presented and said this woman who basically was at the service of the community. So um, the world outside the community was dangerous, right? The city was dangerous. Um, Women, sure, they were supposed to be educated, but that education uh, then would serve a purpose within the community, um, so we see, in a way, the Soviet woman who was out in the world, if we want to, but then she would have to go back home, right, to have this traditional role. And uh, the model that the U.S. proposed was instead, you know, a woman who could be, again, educated, but was support, could not betray the community. So in a way... Obviously, none of these models was progressive, but it's interesting how, you know, they play back and forth. Um, they they use this rhetoric, right, of which model of woman could be exportable. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And as you write about, not other countries have their own ideas about what the place of women and what the place of family is as well. Um, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that in two examples that you give, Um Another trend that you have running throughout this book that I think is really interesting is this clash between universal human rights and cultural relativism, and that, um, as you explain, is really inextricable from the broader politics of imperialism. Um, so I want to ask you about two examples where that plays out on women's bodies, and that's um, polygamy and female circumcision or female genital modification. So. The first one, you use this sort of um, international anger over this case of the 110 wives of the Fawn. So, can you explain that a little bit and tell us what that shows about changing women's rights norms?
0: Yeah. So the so these are two case studies, if we want to, right? Um. I'm, So to talk about the first one, I would like to briefly describe the trusteeship council because um, it came from there. Um, So the the council, as I mentioned earlier, was created at the San Francisco conference and it substituted uh, the mandate system of the League of Nations. In both the mandate and the trusteeship council is included the possibility of petitions Um, The UN received thousands of petitions from, so these were former colonies um, under international tutelage with the idea of uh, um, preparing these countries to then reach independence. Now, the language of the mandate was more paternalistic if we want to. Uh, the language of the trusteeship council is more oriented towards uh, human rights and even, right, like the charter, it has this, you know, sex equality principle. So more, if we want, innovative. the So the story, this co celebre of uh, the fon of become form is just chief or leader become is an area in uh, uh, the Bamanda region in Cameroon um, it all started with a petition from um, an an NGO right with catholic ties right saint john international alliance um, and it's, it's, a, it's a very intricate case with many, right, uh, parts, what I would describe a new colonial plot, right? Colonial plot is an expression that anthropologist and Laura Stoller uses a lot. But I see here that there is a new, more international colonial plot. So we have uh, the organization which sent the, the petition, in which there is part of an article written by a nun, Sister Loretta, from Chicago, of all places, a Franciscan nun. So Sister Loretta uh, published this article in a um, in a Christian uh, Catholic newspaper, I think, uh, published in the UK. Um, then Saint John, the organization included part of this article in a petition describing this situation in which, and the language is very interesting, right? There is this language of the fairy tale, right? A young woman was doing her chores, right? In this bucolic setting when suddenly, right, uh, this bad man, uh, uh come and uh, you know in a way a raster there is some violence there and uh, but the young woman and the father know what this meant right that she was betrothed um to to the chief uh now besides this the story itself and as always right as I was always I would always tell my students it doesn't matter whether this is true or not. What matters is right the language uh that they use to describe this situation and how right and also the issue you know petitions were great if we want democratic tool for the colonized for people uh in these dependent territories or trusteeship territories. Um, to share the injustice of colonialism at with this international podium, at this international podium. But petitions could be used by anyone who had an interest in that territory. And so in this case, this is in a way a more Pro colonialism petition, right? Basically, it's saying this is what's going on, and you claim that these trust territories, to in order for them to be ready for independence, they have to practice human rights. If we want to. And and then there are all these interventions, right? This is discussed within the Commission on the Status of Women. Uh, Then, uh, you know, the New York Times uh, uh, wrote a series of articles, very ironical. Um, And then uh, the last part is uh, an activist, right? An American journalist uh, who went there. She wanted to have a part in all this and she so she describes this journey in a very interesting uh, memoir that she wrote about the experience, and uh, and then eventually um, the the phone itself, right? The the leader of the area who sent a petition saying that, you know, women uh, were there, they were free to go, and, um, you know, the women contributed to uh, to the petition. But what's interesting to me is how, you know, the UN always operated in a similar way. There was always an initial outrage for something that happened, right, elsewhere, like in this... Uh, far away location, if you want. Commissioners participated in the outrage, right? Both to have a political space and also because, you know, it was their mentality, this rescuing mentality. But then, and so... But then cultural relativism, right, took over and they would say, oh, no, but this is fine. This is, um, you know, polygamy actually is useful because it's a way for women to, you know, to have an income, to be inserted within, um, you know, a labor setting if we want to. Um, And it's interesting to me because, you know, cultural relativism had a moment of glory, right, towards the end of the 1940s and uh, and it was really if we think about it the contrary of the civilizing mission right so giving dignity to every type of uh, of cultural trait if we want to but then um, if if we look more closely right, um, this means also accepting a situation in which traditionally women right are inferior and or traditionally or pi- patriarchy dominates these societies obviously, this was true for pretty much the whole globe like i mean it is true today, so I don't want to say that. Um, you know, the UN was right. To me, the ambivalence is interesting, right? The um, All the speeches, right? The Times even said the UN actually went to count the wife and then they ended up saying that polygamy is not that bad after all. And so there is this, right, irony around this issue. Um, the, uh, the second one, uh, the second case study, and and i made it a point in the book to also um represent multiple voices in uh, in an issue which is uh, you know very um delicate um i do not have any specific position towards um female genital modification it it, it what interests me is how it intersected with colonialism and and how the UN continued uh, this campaign um, in different ways, right? And how, as I mentioned earlier, right, uh, Cold War conflict um, disappeared when commissioners discussed FGM. And... The the language is important because they changed the language. Um, So, for example, the French delegate used ancient customs, and I would argue she did that to decline any responsibility. Uh, There is an important issue here Uh, of France and Britain, where... Um they still had colonies, right and so the u n asked countries on a volunteer base to provide updates on their dependent territories and then separated from these uh, um the trusteeship territories um so the change in language is important who starts the discussion on this? right? And it's very often St. John, the organization uh, that I mentioned earlier, got involved with that too. So there is the ancient customs, rituals, all these words. And then later, right, they would just say circumcision. It was very difficult to talk about, right, what, the procedure was, right? Because it deals with genitals. And so there was a common outrage. um, And we can see the difference, right? Um, In 1960, there is the first um, international seminar in Addis Ababa. And we can see how, you know, women from the African continent, um obviously they were in a diplomatic difficult situation because you know they sure they were part of the UN too right um at least early some countries were part some new countries um they they spoke about education they spoke about you know medical safety if we want um they did not use a language of outrage as commissioners do, like the Polish commissioners at the nineteen fifty-eight session who said we need to remedy and paraphrasing, we need to remedy this revolting state of affairs. So even the word, right? Pretty strong. And or even Marie Hélène Le she would say, in a dark, in these dark rooms, again with this language, right? With this overly charged gender language that belongs to fairy tales in a way, right? Always describing and depicting. Um, women, but this was still part of imperial feminism, right? Women to rescue. And and these events gave them this, um, so much political space, even especially with the circumcision, you know, the Human Rights Commission uh, um, participated. Uh, then eventually, as you know, this is a well-known, the end of this story is well-known, right? This, it's, you know, the it, I think the steps, because they are, right, in the archives are more difficult to trace, right, the different speeches. And the end is that the WHO basically said, this is a cultural issue, we cannot interfere. But I think the multiple steps, even the fact that at some point, right, because the difference between human rights and women's rights, um, it is... Usually, right, historians and activists would say that it happened much later, right, at the, the Beijing conference. But in some instances, when uh, the outrage was um, at its highest stages, right, they would talk about human rights, which is very interesting to me how, you know, this correspondence, right, the human rights of women actually happened in these overly if we want, um, hegemonic settings. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think there's so many things that you identify in this sort of trajectory of an issue um, that seems very familiar in much later periods and even today, the same types of rhetoric, the same issue framing. So it's just fascinating to see it sort of written back as early as the 40s and 50s. Um, Let me ask you about a trend that comes a little bit after this in the UN, and that is the sort of Women, and, women in development um, at the United Nations. How does that play out in the commission? And specifically, how do Global North delegates versus delegates from the Global South conceptualize the role that women should play in the quote-unquote development of their nations?
0: Um, I want to say that, you know, the book has these two parallel stories, right? One is a... If we want a colonial story of imperial feminism, of wanting to rescue, the other one is the pushback, right, from um, if we want post-colonial voices, right? And... Um, the, which is there, right? From the beginning, as I mentioned, the Indian representative, um, Minerva Bernardino, who always had this ambiguous position. Um, or in some instances, there is also a representative from Haiti. So it is there. It is there. Um, but development uh, represents a clear pushback from women in former colonies or if you want in the global south and um, I would like to specify also because I think it's important because um, it is not part of the common narrative of the commission that some Representatives, for example, Bedia Afnan from Iraq and later Aziz Hussein from Egypt or the Arab Republic were ahead of their times. I mean, Afnan said things in favor of women's rights in 1952, in the occasion of the voting of the Convention on Political Rights of Women. Uh, which were very innovative, right? She she was able to detach, right, or if you want to to provide an understanding of Islam which was pro women, which I think was very innovative for the time being. So I would like to mention that contrary to, um, you know, stereotypes. Um, women from the Islamic world were way more innovative than women from Western Europe. Um, So development, as you know, became a mantra, right? This idea of exporting a successful capitalist recipe all over the world, right? um if you notice countries that the UN in the UN speeches went from being dependent territories to being underdeveloped right so so as contemporary um you know women gender studies scholars would say right uh, there is this um, if you want this Africa, it needs to be rescued, right? This imaginary place constructed, right? It need to be rescued. Um, the commissioners, the commission participated. Um, they did understand that it was important to involve women in development, but the issue with development is really... Um, you know, exporting capitalism, which unavoidably generated um, inequality, right? Gender inequality, race inequality. Um, but in the context, so for example, in the context of the, the debates on development, it was, we have two instances, um, one in which I believe it was Aziza Hussein who said, if you keep saying to us that we are backwards, we're not going anywhere. This is not going to work, um, because right, because of course they wanted this conversation, which was on an equal base, right, rather than, um, you know, always feeling that they missed something to be um, at the same level of other commissioners. And then at some point during a discussion, um, I don't I don't clearly remember who said it, but there was this this um, important pushback that said, "Gender inequality is anywhere, right? If you keep on saying that we are, they, you know, we are more." in in a, in a situation of greater inequality, right, you are assuming you're coming from a position in which uh, you have total equality, which was not true, right? I mean, we know from, I know, obviously, from secondary sources that it's not that Western Europe or the U.S. had this, I mean, they still don't have it, <laughs> gender equality, but to me, it is important to point out sure, the commissioners understood that women had to participate in development. They never really questioned, right, um, this big system such as capitalism or communism, or, right. So they would just act on a more, you know, we have to include women. Um, the whole argument of the book, right revolves around this well-known transition of commissioners which went from advocating for formal equality and even the data that they looked i mentioned earlier statistics right so if we look at statistics on voting um, they're not really representative of uh, how women are whether women are equal or unequal in their everyday life, right? So it is really this, right, observing the artist's body that then leads them to consider, right, practices. They always talked about discrimination in a very abstract way. There was never a perpetrator in discrimination, but then... You know all these discussions on violence, all this discussion on uh, women that had to be inserted within development, led to you know um, politics that centered around uh, practice, right? The the practice of discrimination and and the discussion on. reproductive what today we call reproductive rights was part of this trend
1: so me, i don't yes.
0: want to say, oh, sorry sorry go ahead
1: no finish up i've got another question for you after. Oh,
0: so i don't want to say because you know sometimes when i talk about this book um, I mean, I don't want to say that equality here had a colonial origin, but rather that because of the pushback of women from newly formed countries, then there was this reckoning of uh, the former imperial feminist um, commissioners who said, okay, wait a minute, we're all in the same boat here. Mm-hmm. I really
1: um, found convincing in your book that argument that this is sort of the period where the CSW transitions from a concern with law to a concern with practice. And I think what you've just said there about that interest in bodies and how that plays out um, is really at the crux of this. So I'd like to just ask you one more sort of case study question, and that is about reproductive rights, which you just mentioned. That's, of course, a topic that directly concerns women's bodies and one that becomes hugely important at the United Nations. So how did the CSW address issues of family planning? Um, And how did different delegates understand that?
0: Sure. Um, So let's consider that... If in the 1950s there was this accusation of uh, colonial, colonialism, imperial, imperialism, um, in the 1960s and 70s, the danger was feminism. Commissioners hinted to this idea that they were diplomats and in diplomacy there is no room for politics, especially not politics of the second wave, which for them were more about agitation, right? So so they had to find a way to talk about reproductive rights um, in a non-feminist way. And so what they used was, if if we think about it, they used development in the sense that this was an issue of human rights, an issue of resources. So if in a family there were two children versus a family with six children, the family with two had a more um, had more resources. So this is in an issue of economic rights because you know that also commissioners first, um, you know, um, deliberated if we want of political rights later on economic rights, and so so the issue was you know spacing children to give a chance. It was more um, in in those theories of modernization of uh, the 1960s. Um, in one of my articles, I also talk about this book. Which was on which warned the world against overpopulation, and there was a ticking bomb right in uh, in the cover. and commissioners um, very carefully tried to discuss um, reproductive rights um, some uh Christian, Catholic, commissioners. Um, Abortion was never mentioned, of course. That was the, you know, the big elephant in the room. That was never mentioned. Um, So they discussed it in a more practical way. Um, So from the point of view of the children, rather than from the point of view of the mother, right? So less children, more resources. What's interesting is how the UNESCO, and there is also, you know, books usually have these parallel stories. There is also this parallel story of how the agencies, the UN agencies, since the early days of the passage from subcommission to commission. They did not appreciate when commissioners uh, um, spoke like experts, right? Because they claimed that they were the experts. The commission was first um, affected by constant Cold War conflicts, right? This is what sources from uh, the UNESCO, the ILO, the WHO archive would clearly say. And later, they were just a bunch of feminists, so, in, in the case of reproductive rights, Elvis Epila, the, um, the representative from Finland, was also the rapporteur in uh, for a report on reproductive rights, right? And the UNESCO attacked this report, and it attacked it through cultural relativism and claiming that... The position of the Commission on the Status of Women was a privileged Western position. And basically, they did not understand um, the the status of women in these countries uh, where there was this danger uh, of overpopulation. And so these conflicts are... Interesting. Um, so yeah, reproductive rights. The the commissioners, I would like to say, they were able diplomats, right? Because they, it was not easy to to discuss these issues in ways that did not, um, let's say, offend the sensibilities of uh, of the member states represented. Mm-hmm.
1: Well. Let me ask you one more question about the book that's a little bit more stylistic. And that is that you include images very thoughtfully in this. You know, each chapter starts with a photo, usually from the UN archives. Um, Could you talk a little bit about why you chose to do that and
0: the importance of those visuals? Definitely. Um, So this really came from... uh, um... You know, my I define myself as a historian of bodies and empires, and I believe that it was important to, to trace um, a visual history of uh, of the commission, or at least of issues that were either directly or indirectly involved with what I discuss in the book. Um, traditional historians do include images, but. They are not discussed within right the narratives of the book. so so my intent was to to build this uh, parallel visual story. And the UN has a wonderful historical archive. Um, like any organization, photos are to to glorify. Right, to glorify the organization. But if we look right closely and especially with contemporary, you know, more contemporary categories, we can see what these images really are. Um, so I chose, for example, the what well, the cover, which is also the image, I believe, of chapter, I think it's chapter six. The cover to me was very powerful. And it represented the shift in the in the commission politics from when um, delegates in um, let's say in these former colonies in Asia and Africa went from being right the, the objects of the rescue to being right clear agent right to push back. And so, to me, this photo here. Um, taken right in front of the the room of the General Assembly is, and also the traditional clothing, some of them are wearing traditional clothing, some of them aren't, is also this, if you want, uh, proud um, tool of, uh, you know, anti-colonial nationalism, and uh, the the photo, uh, so we go from the signing of the charter by Minerva Bernardino with those, right, men who are kind of the guardians, right, and the flag which represents, right, how the UN, sure, it is an international um, organization, but also still has this intrinsic idea of statehood, right? And then I wanted to present, right, the early stages of what today is a recognizable, sadly recognizable and widely used um, photo of the female refugee. And in, um, in the photo of chapter two, I do discuss, right, the, and these are two Palestinian women, right? and so then uh, you know the um, uh, in in three so there is so each image is connected to a specific fact of um, the the chapter i think it's interesting that you know in those projects in which the un was involved in development starting in the 1950s with the advisory programs women are there so this is the image i believe of chapter 3 right women are there observing and so there is this this issue of still being in and out of development and and then for the trusteeship council, I wanted to show how the meeting was highly technocratic, right? How do we measure whether a country is ready for independence, right? And if anything, are, are countries who were independent back then really ready for being independent, right? And how women were absent, right? Uh, like Roosevelt letter, right, women are always an added dimension, right, so this is also the false universalism, right, of uh, human rights and women's rights, and, and then later there are more of these images of clear contribution of, uh, um, you know, the new post-colonial states and how You know, uh, they participated in the UN. The last I wanted to add um, an image of an actual commission meeting and there are no white women in the last image. Yeah.
1: Well, I could ask you a dozen more questions about this book, but I think that's a great way to wrap up this um, discussion because it really does show you the trajectory of the Commission on the Status of Women. And I think you make a really compelling case in this book that the CSW is a really rich place to look, to think about these broader theoretical themes. Um, So I hope a lot of folks will pick this up. Um, And I'd love to just end by asking you what you're working on next.
0: Well, um, I have a new uh, book contract with Routledge for... Um, I decided to continue to work on international solidarity. Is it possible to have, at least historically, was it possible to have international solidarity? So I'm writing about um, specifically about Italy, so I want to go back... Home intellectually and Italy and third worldism, which was a leftist understanding of solidarity towards decolonization and liberation and this is still centered around the body and how body the body was the body of the other was represented in uh, Um, films and other spaces, such as the Venice Film Festival. It's a different project that deals, again, with what I would call ego history and the fact that, you know, I'm from a colonial family. I'm also from Sicily, right? Which to Antonio Gramsci was part of Italy internal colonialism. And I live in the U.S. where I'm a feminist migrant and and this is a settler colony. So all these elements are part of this new project. But I want to say that I will continue to work on the United Nations because I don't want to abandon this. And right now I'm revising an article on the history of language of FGM within uh, the United Nations. And I plan to work with other colleagues interested in the United Nations on on a project, on the petitions of the trusteeship council, which are thousands. And we want to look at petitions as, uh, you know, a window inside everyday life within the trusteeship, uh, the trust territories. Well, both sound like fascinating projects,
1: and I'll look forward to reading them. Um, Jeezy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's really been a pleasure to hear you talk more about this book.
0: Thank you so much, Rebecca. Enjoy the
1: rest of your day. Um, Hi, I'm Rebecca Turkington, and you've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network, where we've discussed women, empires, and body politics at the United Nations, 1946 to 1975, by Dr. Juzi Russo, a 2023 release from the University of Nebraska Press.